Welcome back to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode continues discussing different scenes in the episode, uh, organizing them by storyline, but in this case, uh, it's non-Lara subplot. So yesterday we focused on the scenes and stories that had to do with Lara. Today we focus on the uh, the other subplots. So uh, let's begin. For the subplots, uh, non-Laura related, ex- at least not explicitly related to Laura, for the Packard family life, uh, before Cooper and Harry arrive, Josie is thanking Pete for standing up to her, or standing up for her, uh, although I think she says standing up to her at the mill to Catherine in the previous episode. And, uh, you know, Pete says, oh, don't think anything of it. We're seeing a nice sort of rapport between them at this point. There's like a, fr- it's, it's, it's establishing and cementing a friendliness between the two characters that we didn't really get a chance to glimpse in the pilot. It's also building off of stuff that was in the pilot, like Josie's malapropism, uh, which ironically I may have just mispronounced, but the, the sort of phrases that she uses that aren't quite right. As she says that in the pilot, she says, pull, like, pull the button or something. I can't remember what she says, but she says something that doesn't quite make sense. She says that here too. Uh, on top of the morning to you, Pete, and he kind of laughs and chuckles. It's top of the morning to you, and it's not morning, it's afternoon and all this. So, you know, they have a nice chemistry there. And then when Catherine calls and uh, harasses Josie over the phone, she's yelling at her about what she did the day before, stopping work at the mill to honor Laura and, uh, you know, costs her for not knowing how businesses run and how much money it cost them and then when she hangs up uh, Catherine's clicking glasses with somebody else which we'll get to for the Briggs family life we see one scene with that family at their home there where uh, Major Briggs uh, the army officer father of Bobby is sitting there and his mother is very sort of upright and uh, you know they just look like it's totally ill-suited to uh to bobby his parents major briggs again with the hill street blues watching that he seems reminiscent of a mix between sergeant esterhouse who is like a beloved character on that show sort of an elder figure in the police station always has wisdom but very sort of witty and you know humorous and and very articulate like he'll he'll speak in this in the sort of similar way to major briggs uh, but he also reminds me of Lieutenant Howard Hunter, who's sort of a lovable but ridiculous figure, who's like one of the more militarist cops and always speaks in this sort of chipper off way. Like he looks, you know, he's a Vietnam vet and he looks like he stepped straight out of like a, some sort of elite army squad or something. And uh, so, so you know, the, I, I feel like those characters may have been brought, especially to this uh, presentation of Major Briggs in this episode by Mark Frost. For the Horn family life, as I mentioned, we find there's emotional problems running through the Horn family when Audrey talks to Cooper, and he establishes right away, oh, you're Ben Horn's daughter, you can sit anywhere you want in this establishment, you know, so there's a sense of her sort of privilege and power in this community, or at least from his perception. Later, we see Audrey dancing in Ben's office, and he shuts the record off and scolds her for scaring away the Norwegians before, and she's very petulant and pouty, and he says... I lost, you know, Laura, Laura died two days ago. I lost you years ago. And he storms out. So this is interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, formally, it's all shot in one take. Uh, a very nice sort of composed scene, executed, one shot, no cuts. And it also sounds like 
Audrey's dancing to the score. Like we don't hear this. The scene that begins, we don't really think there's like a record playing off screen with Badalamenti's music. But sure enough, that's what Ben shuts off when he walks in. There's also a great line where he says, you know, he threatens her with scrubbing bidets in a Bulgarian convent if she misbehaves again. We're really learning about Audrey in this episode. She didn't speak much in the pilot. She was a one, a delightful figure, but a very one note figure. Um, she broods a little bit in the scene with her mom, but for the most part, she's just kind of like alert and active and uh, mischievous. But now she's being given a background, not just behavior. Her her profile is being boosted. We're getting a sense that she's unhappy somewhat, at least with Ben. This is also the first time Ben has brought up Laura. Even when he was there, when Leland found out, he was always concerned with the business deal. This is the first hint that like he has anything to say about Laura at all. For the Ghostwood uh, development Packard Sawmill plot, we have uh, Josie, you know, Pete and Josie talking about the mill and how it shut down, and then Catherine calling, as I said. But then we get a new angle on it. Uh, Catherine is in a motel with Ben, and it turns out, there's a twist, she actually wants the mill to go belly up. So even though she's tormenting Josie, it's a weird strategy, like she's taunting Josie, telling her she's ruining the business. Maybe it's just a cover so that nobody realizes she wants the business to go under, but she does. She's she's making a deal with Ben, and uh, you know I guess that's the inside info or whatever that he was <laughs> talking about in the previous episode with Leland before their meeting with the Norwegians. It's funny how they treat Ben's appearance in this scene with a little suspense, even though we've already seen Catherine and Ben talking in the previous episode, and it's going to be revealed in a minute or two anyways that he's in the in the motel room with her. It's like we only see his lower body first as he clinks glasses and then as he's in the mirror, and then it's like, boom, 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 it's Ben. You know, it's kind of over the top. They have very purple dialogue. They're very much upscale villains in a soap, like the wealthy middle-aged characters who run the you know the lives of everyone else and have their own intrigue they're really turned on by the intrigue like they're as much turned on by the business as each other it's just kind of funny uh, you can see frost enjoying writing this a lot i think and and it's i think it's been said that this was totally his wheelhouse like lynch was not involved with this storyline at all uh, they make out in the motel room after but ben is mostly just sucking her toes and as it turns out i guess uh, richard bamer who plays ben has has spoken about this in later years, Piper Laurie, for some reason, just did not want to do like a makeout scene. She's like, no, 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 we're not going to kiss. We're not going to do this. It's like, well, what can we do? And somehow they came to the conclusion that he could like suck her toes. They got away with doing that instead. Kind of funny. And uh, she introduces a few things in their dialogue, a few ideas, planting a few seeds for the mill pot plot going forward. There's a ledger that has some odd arithmetic that she's hoping Pete doesn't see. And of course, Ben brings up the idea of arson, says maybe it's time to start a little fire in regards to the mill because they don't feel like they can wait a whole year for it to go under and, and get their windfall. Meanwhile, we get a mood shift with Ben in the next scene with him where he has to put on an angry face and yell at Audrey about chasing the Norwegians away. Um, which is interesting because it's like his anger has carried over into the next day, but we have just seen him in a different mode. So we know Ben can sort of switch and uh, apply whatever he needs in a given situation. For the Shelley, Bobby, and Leo storyline, we're really getting a sense of the abusive situation in that home for sure. It was, it was hinted at in the uh, previous episode, but now we see real confirmation as he actually beats her. Uh, in that last scene, he slips the soap inside the sock, swings it around, and tells her she's got to take better care of his stuff. 
and and hits her with it. We don't see anything about Bobby's involvement with Shelley in this episode at all, but uh, it is interesting now we're realizing, obviously, Bobby's not just having an affair with Shelley. He's having an affair with, like, the wife of his dangerous business partner. So that's uh, <laughs> that's quite striking. And uh, we also see Leo cutting up a football. We're not sure why yet. And when one thing that's interesting, sort of striking as a visual, is that when he's attacking Shelly, she huddles in the corner with all the plastic from the walls because they're doing some sort of construction on their house. So there's all this plastic tarp lying around, and she's huddled up in it as he races towards her, and it's like, ah, okay. James and Dor- Donna's storyline is obviously very connected to Donna and Laura and James and Laura, so I feel like I've covered most of it, but we have Donna talking to her mom about James, and then Donna introducing James to her parents uh, at the end of the episode. She brings him over. He's wearing a sweater, and it's all sort of stiff and, and uh, genial, but, you know, a little awkward. I mean, it is the day after her friend died, and this guy was just arrested the night before, so they seem like they're taking it pretty well. This this may be an area where Twin Peaks' uh, story mechanisms are moving a little too fast. You know, they wanted to jump to the next day, but they also wanted to get in some big developments, so you know who knows but uh, James mentions his aunt Nadine in this part so we know that he kind of thinks of her as part of the family well I mean obviously she is his aunt she's married to Ed but it's just up till now we haven't seen any connection between those two characters Mike and Bobby drive by they see James's bike etc they say too bad we can only kill him once and we wonder you know because both basically both Bobby and Mike are being cuckolded uh, or were being cuckolded and now are like it's it's the two of them together kind of a funny duo in that sense these tough guys uh they say too bad we can only kill them once we wonder like are they serious like is this is this a real threat or are they being flippant so far cooper hasn't seemed to be too worried about them um although he does warn people about you know look out for mike and bobby mike and bobby but like he's not putting surveillance on them or something so we can either agree or disagree with that for the Nadine's Drape Runner storyline, this is really becoming a plot now. Uh, the drapes are, she wants to have, no, she wants to invent noiseless, completely silent drape runners. And for some reason, she thinks buying cotton is going to help her. So Norma runs into her in this general store and she's going on and on, even though mentioning, well, my husband was in, you know, emergency care. I was coming up with my plan for drape runners. It's just very bizarre. I love the model train that runs through the opening of the scene. It's just a colorful little detail. Really giving Twin Peaks this feel of this quaint little town with all these knickknacks. You know, they're really pushing that in this episode. We don't have anything about the Teresa Banks case as a storyline this week. The other girl who was murdered by uh, ostensibly the same killer. For Mike and Donna's storyline, uh, th- their relationship is only mentioned when they drive by James's house. And he says, first your, girl- first your girlfriend, now mine. So he's now invested in this uh, even more than he already was, just out of loyalty to to Bobby before. The Ed and Norma storyline, when uh, Cooper goes off to take Albert's call, Harry and Ed talk a little bit, and Ed, and Harry kind of teases him. He says, I thought that bump on your head was, I thought Nadine found out about you and Norma, and Ed laughs and says, you know, I'd be singing, I'd be playing harp for the heavenly all-stars if Nadine knew about me and Norma. And then later, uh, when we have the scene in the general store, you're getting this awkwardness on Norma's part because, of course, she knows this is the wife of her 
lover and it's like how much of this is guilt how much is sympathy for nadine how much of it is sympathy for ed like god my poor boyfriend has to put up with this we don't get anything for the hank in prison storyline this on this installment for josie and harry uh when they, when Cooper and Harry make their call and she leaves the room, uh, Cooper's keeping a close eye on, on, well, as he says, Harry's body language. And he says, oh, how long have you been in love with her? And Harry is astonished. How'd you know? So that's now right out in the open. And Harry explains that he's been seeing her for six weeks and that Andrew died a year and a half ago, her ex, her uh, husband, who she was widowed of. <laughs> he could be widowed of somebody, died in a boating accident. And this, I think is put forward to reassure Cooper and I guess the audience that there's nothing untoward in their relationship. Even though it's secret, it's not like they were having an affair or something. They just, it's not public right now. There's no uh, development on the Bobby killed a guy storyline this week. The thing that James said to Donna about uh, what Laura told him. There's some new subplots now. Uh, these are scenes that could end up being standalones, but they're putting forward something that also could continue. One of these is the Cooper and Audrey flirtation. Uh, when Cooper is talking to the waitress, uh, he turns and he sees Audrey approaching, just looking vivacious. She sits down and they chat and she says, oh, my palms are all sweaty. And he's like, mm, okay, here's a real chemistry between them. And everybody noticed this. This was a very popular scene when it aired and after it aired also we're getting a new storyline about cocaine and twin peaks as a criminal activity not just involved with laura but as a broader story we're learning that uh, mike and bobby are doing pretty good business if they're getting twenty thousand that they're just exchanging with uh leo you know i don't know what the coke trade was like in 1990 but uh that seems like you know a couple high school kids uh in a small town doing pretty well for themselves. And this is not really hinted in the pilot at all. So I, I feel like it's something they, that Lynch and Frost probably came up with during a long break. Like, what do we want? You know, so Mike and Bobby are going to get out of jail. And obviously they're still going to be going after James. But what else can we give them as story material? Oh, maybe they could be like involved with this 10,000 and stuff. I don't know. Maybe they had it in mind from the pilot on, but it does seem like something they could have invented. There's a lot of things that are now being put forward to keep the plot going week to week. Another storyline introduced this episode is the stakeout at the roadhouse. Harry reveals to, uh, to I'm sorry, Ed reveals to Harry that he wasn't just at the roadhouse to meet Norma. He was also on his stakeout. And he refers to it like it's something they know about. So there's a little conspiratorial tone that we in the audience have to lean forward and wonder about. It basically retcons, uh, you know, Ed's injury. Because clearly at the in that pilot, it's shown as like the kids punched him in the face and he fell down. But now he's saying, oh, no, I was out on my feet before I even uh, felt the blow. Like I, I was, I think uh, my drink was drugged. And he says that Jacques was tending bar at the roadhouse. So there's a new character for us to consider and wonder about. I also like how Harry uh, points to Ed's head and he says, how's that coconut? Which is kind of a little tease of the ending where we actually see Jacoby open up a coconut and uh, Laura's uh, necklace is in there. Another storyline that we're getting a little tease of this this uh, episode is the Bookhouse Boys. Just mentioned once, James says to Ed when, when he's released from jail, I, I need you to, you know, get the Bookhouse boys together. I, I need somebody to watch my back. Uh, so something, there's some 
something called the Bookhouse Boys, and uh, we don't know yet what that is. Also in this scene, forgot to mention before, when uh, Hawk is transporting James in uh, or out of his cell, he gives a weird little finger motion on his face that, that Ed repeats, so we don't have anything on that yet. Another storyline is the one-armed man. When Hawk is questioning the Pulaski's in the hospital, he looks up and sees a reflection in a mirror of uh, the one-armed man who we saw very briefly in the pilot on the elevator with Cooper and Harry getting off the elevator, walking down the hall past a point that says staff only and into an area that leads toward the morgue. So Hawk's attuned to this, what's going on, but he doesn't say anything. He keeps quiet and follows him and then loses him, unfortunately. But clearly he wants to know more before asking any questions. Now that the one-armed man is back, it's clear he's not just a one-off. Like in the previous episode, he was just basically an extra, a sort of a striking uh, detail and that uh, I think was a, a reference to The Fugitive, the show that had a one-armed man as a suspect. Finally, standalone character scenes, a scene that has no real relation to anything else in the episode. We have to rewind all the way back to the beginning of the episode for this with Coop hanging upside down talking to Diane on his tape recorder. So we heard a clip of this. We talked about what we see in his room. But after that uh, scene continues... He's talking all about his experience in the hotel, basically giving it a review, to uh, passing it along to Diane. And he's, she's heard this before because he said, you know, you're that lumpy mattress in El Paso. I told you about that before and everything. And at the very end of the conversation, he says dramatically, only one thing is troubling me. What really happened between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys? And who really pulled the trigger on JFK? So this is great. This is clearly a reference to the uh, goddess screenplay that Lynch and Frost worked on. It's how they met. And it was a sort of conspiratorial story about Marilyn Monroe's relationship to the Kennedys and her death and everything like that. So they're having a little fun with that. But it also shows us Cooper and his kind of like worldly curiosity that he has beyond just sort of his intense focus on this case. You know, he's his mind is expanding everywhere. And it's also this is a useful little scene because it shows us that Cooper, uh, it's the, his first morning at the hotel, so clearly we know right away we have almost no time has passed since the pilot. And the case is right where we left it. For the uncanny, let's talk about that. There's a little bit more to talk about this week than there was, or this uh, episode than there was in the previous one. We see that weird montage of the picnic dream thing. Again, I'm not sure if that's supposed to be like a vision or if it's directed at us, if it's something Donna's experiencing as a dream. I don't think they really thought it out. I think they just wanted to use it, but it definitely adds to an uncanny vibe. When we see Lars face over Donna, this is another kind of hint of Sarah's psychic ability that was uh, also implied in the previous episode when she sits up on the couch and we see the cutaway to the, somebody pulling the necklace out of the woods. And the long-haired man, that, I mean, this in a way is really the first moment that, uh, this is like the first really uncanny moment in the show, I think. Uh, but I mentioned before, we sort of meet him in this episode, and here's why I can reveal this now. I mentioned in the pilot, like, take a look in the mirror behind Sarah when she sits up. And uh, I didn't say why, but now I can tell you because we've seen him. He's in that mirror, in that shot. 
And uh, I won't say anything more about why he's in that mirror, how that happened, what that has to do with him being in this in this moment. But, uh, you know, the this figure has now twice been associated with uh, with Sarah, the, with Sarah's agitation. Uh, we also get the log lady talking about her log. My log saw something that night. So suddenly the log is not just a prop, it's a presence, which was not the case in the pilot. There was just a funny quirk of this townsperson. But now it's like, okay, this log knows things. It can communicate. So another sort of uncanny, spiritual, I guess we could sort of vaguely use the word supernatural, but it's not clear at all if this is like just in her mind, if it's... Uh, harder to pin down, or if there's actually some sort of spiritual candidate the log can work as. But we're getting we're getting a sense here of the uncanny vibe of Twin Peaks. Thank you for listening. If you want to support this work, you can rate, review, and subscribe. You can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. I'll note that uh, I just recorded, uh, at the time you're hearing this, I will have just recorded a conversation with another Twin Peaks commentator, in this case, John Thorne, who I've had many extensive conversations with in the past. He was the publisher of Wrapped in Plastic, the fanzine that really kept Twin Peaks alive for a decade or so. And we have a lot to talk about. So uh, I think people are really going to enjoy this one. It will probably go up within the week. Part of it will be public on YouTube, but part of it will be uh, exclusive to patrons, the, the larger part. And our conversations have tended to go somewhat long in the past. So at the time that I'm uh, recording this right now, we haven't spoken yet. But by the time you're listening to it, we will have. And my guess is it'll be uh, one of the longer conversations I publish. So looking forward to that. And uh, again, there's there's so much there for uh, people who want to dive deeper into Twin Peaks. But of course, in this podcast, we've also got a lot coming too. So stay tuned tomorrow for... Uh, the next episode, which is going to be formatted a little differently than last week's. Uh, with the pilot, I had more material to divide up, so I grouped things together a little differently. Uh, the media coverage is actually going to wait a couple days. It's going to be paired with my archive readings because there wasn't as much for this episode. And tomorrow, we're going to jump right to the historical context, talk about what was on TV, what was in the news, and so forth at this time. Oh,